Welcome to Typhoon Talks, brought to you by Typhoon Consulting, a boutique management consultancy headquartered in Hong Kong. I'm Kelly Haas-Jager, and I'm an analyst with the firm. So today I'm joined by several other people in the office, and our setup is defined by birth years. So we have Becky, Martin, and myself as part of Gen Z. Hello. Hello. And also with us today are Michael and Chen, part of the millennial generation. Hello. Hi there. And today we're bringing the two generations together to have a discussion about what some of the trends have been and how they relate in terms of our personal perspectives on the world and our personal experiences. It's become increasingly important to understand how this line has been drawn because it's really interesting that between these two generations there's only a few months between the people here today to have this discussion. So we're going to start off by trying to understand what makes millennials different from Gen Z and what are the repercussions from these established differences. All right, so just to give a brief overview of what also makes us different individual to individual. I'm from Gen Z, but a Dutch Singaporean and I've lived abroad most of my life, mostly in big cities. And that has, I think, also really influenced my experience of what makes typical Gen Z experiences. And then, where are you guys from? I'm from the UK. Um, I'm from quite a small town, about 80,000 people. Pretty rural. A lot of people have chickens. And my parents are both doctors, so quite a middle-class background. Hi, I'm Martin. I'm British and I'm from London, and both my parents work in the voluntary sector for charities. I'm Chen. I'm from Shanghai, and both of my parents work in the university. So my name is Mike. I'm from the millennial generation. I'm uh, probably one of the younger um, millennials on as far as the spectrum goes. I'm from a, a small town in the state of Connecticut in the United States, about 20,000 people. Uh, parents both work in the private sector. Great, thanks guys. So first let's go back to basics for a bit. Let's look at some formative events and technology in, as indicators of generational difference. So even though we're only separated by a few years, what do you guys think is some important technological instances that differentiate us? When do you guys think you became digitally sentient? I think I started using Messenger in early 2000. Yeah, the, the first experience I had with the internet was maybe when I was like 10 years old, and it was specifically just online games or AOL Instant Messenger. Yeah, I think the equivalent that I would have used was MSN mes Messenger, but then it had to be set up by your parents as well, so you couldn't just join it yourself. Yeah, and for me that was similarly around when I was 10, so it's a little bit later. But again, parents supervised, and it wasn't on your phone. You know, it was, it was on the family computer, which was... So I think also what Becky said about the parents' ability to monitor is what is an interesting point that joins us together as a group rather than divides us a generation. Because if we look at the younger end of Generation Z, they have all these devices that they can access independently. And while there are attempts to regulate this and to protect protect children is not the same as just having a parent watching over your shoulder. I mean, you were saying as well previously that it's incredibly difficult to understand as a parent what's even happening technology-wise. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's linked to how established technology is. You know, when we were young, you might accidentally hit that internet button on your phone, but it was so expensive, you knew you'd be in so much trouble if you found out. So, you know, you quickly try and exit, but your phone's not fast enough to. When did you start to notice that social media was collecting data on you and using it to target you for advertisements? I don't particularly remember the advertising being a thing when I first joined Facebook, um, which was my kind of first social media platform. Um, 
I guess looking back because it probably wasn't relevant and was quite generic overview stuff that didn't really affect me but definitely over the last few years I've noticed you know there's so much more advertising it's basically everywhere. I also didn't notice how data was utilized in the beginning but I think uh, maybe Mark Zuckerberg also didn't know how to use data at that time but over the past five years I started to realize that all the advertisements on Facebook and other social platforms are customized for me. When Facebook moved towards an advertising toward like to be open to advertisers because I remember when the Facebook first came out um, and if you've seen like the movie The Social Network and stuff they didn't have advertising on the platform for uh, a couple of years um, when it was during its uh, normal college years and when it just came out to the public because um, that because Zuckerberg uh, if you read about him uh, actually thought himself that digital advertising and, and data collection was actually a little bit uncool as he usually says so I remember that the shift from when I started to see promotional ads and digital ads uh, and, and sort of starting to realize that they were tailored towards my search habits and the sort of group, the groups that I, were, I was in on Facebook, uh, et cetera, et cetera. As someone who's never been particularly active on Facebook, I didn't notice advertising on Facebook that much. Where I've mainly noticed it is between is the link between Google and YouTube searching for things on Google um, very quickly results in targeted advertising on YouTube videos, which is the main social media platform I use. So the reason I brought this up was that there's been a f quite a lot of studies on in terms of differences between millennials and Gen Z, especially towards the younger end of Gen Z. We're more likely to be using ad blocking software and this means that in terms of marketing firms they're going to have to be a lot more specific and target and how they want to advertise to Gen Z. All of us have a general base knowledge of that advertisers have our data and that they're using it to show us products that might appeal to us based on our search habits and our Facebook groups that we're in and you know yeah our just general internet behaviors. It's a lot in the news a lot recently right with Cambridge Analytica and GDPR and all these different data privacy uh, conversations going on. Well do you guys think that from your standpoint do you think it's good? Do you think it's bad? Do you not care? I definitely care and um, it's a concern for me but it's also something that I can't work away with. I think if I want to use some free apps, free service, that's the cost that I need to pay. So I have to exchange um, my data for free service. Sometimes I do enjoy advertisements but it's more about when you think it's personalized for you and when they're relevant because there's nothing more annoying than being stuck on YouTube watching a two-minute ad about something that's just completely unrelated to anything you do in your life but there are good advertisements and I think that's also the, the issue I was trying to raise with ad blocking software is that that software will just filter out most ads and then you're not left with that many options for what gets through to you. And advertising can be useful to if you get an exchange for your data, a more personalized service. Yeah, I agree with Chen in terms of, I see it as a trade-off for free services. Um, but yeah, I also agree, it does make, I think it makes some ads more interesting and I'm definitely more likely to look at things that are probably targeted, especially if they're really useful, like if you've been, you know, like looking for flights for a holiday, it's really convenient if that is then up as a banner and you can click on it and go straight back to that website just because they're advertising it to you. Um, but I think the thing that's more likely to make me disengaged is just the volume of adverts. They're so easy to screen out. As soon as you notice something's an advert, it's gone. Yeah, I'm on the same page as, uh, as Becky. I, I kind of think that 
and and Chen too is that sure like when you're consuming as much content off of these platforms that are given to you for free like Facebook right is that that business has to make money and I've, I've yet to really see any kind of conclusive stats that like the, the ad besides you know half a second of skipping the ad on a YouTube video or scrolling past a Facebook ad really like disenfranchises you you know what I mean is it sure it's 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 a little bit infringing on your privacy but I don't know about the argument that some people says say uh, or toss around that it's like dangerous or you know you don't know who has your data like sometimes I guess with things like Cambridge Analytica if it's you know illegally misused but that's what we have you know laws and regulations for right but yeah I also agree that the frequency can get kind of annoying um, because it is so prominent on some platforms and they've gotten flack for it right but like YouTube in, in my opinion is one of the worst uh, because every video has some kind of skippable ad at the front um, in regards to YouTube being the main social media platform I use it's the, the trade-off between advertising and free content is one I'm quite happy to pay considering the, the amount of entertainment I get out of it and advertising revenue does allow thousands millions of people to make a living off creating videos and provide entertainment for free for millions tens of millions of people which is something that I think is quite special and wouldn't be possible without advertising. Yeah, I agree. I do think the data is a little bit concerning, um, and I see why people get worried about, especially when it comes to the Cambridge Analytica like political use of data. But I do, again, regulation seems to be the way around that. The thing I think doesn't get quite as enough attention is the kind of more psychological effects of constant advertising. So when they're tailored, I think this kind of increases just in terms of the pressure you get from seeing basically what how it's working is they're showing you idealized versions of how you want to see yourself through your search history and your social media presence and I think that side is something that I worry about a bit more um, especially my younger sister is starting to use social media more and kind of being exposed to that at a younger age I think is something that is really worrying. Yeah and I think also it's the constant exposure that is supposedly highlighting a difference between the two generations and that we've been defined as a generation that has the attention span of eight seconds and that's largely in part to either technology but also advertising that that's how long they have to get a point across and beyond that we're, we're, we've stopped watching. As a generation do you think we're better at filtering out advertising than our parents generation or the millennial generation? more resilient to advertising in terms of we simply ignore it and see it as part and parcel of using the internet? I think the bigger difference might be around personalised advertising. So if I spot something's an advert, I will disengage with it. And I know that as like an internal thing. I will, you know, like, oh, okay, this is different content, like step back a bit. Whereas I don't know if my parents would do the same. I think maybe they'd get excited that it was something that was so relevant to them and maybe it's something they needed. Whereas I would make more of a conscious, this is advertising, this isn't like a fair message I'm getting. And a, another concern for me is not how much the company knows about me or how the third party knows about me, but how my friends know about me through these advertisements. Because sometimes, you know, um, when someone accidentally passed by and see some advertisement <laughs> on your phone, they know what you viewed previously. So in, in that sense, I'm more concerned about people who are close to me know what I'm doing online. Another way that advertisers are becoming increasingly clever is disguising adverts now as news articles to try and, I think, bridge that trust gap that has developed between consumers and advertisers and make people feel as if 
the information they're reading is somehow more accurate and less biased. So one of the things I think that it will be, or at least for me, for the millennial generation, right, is I have seen this, and you guys can kind of give me your commentary as well from uh, the Gen Z standpoint, but kind of what Martin's talking about is this move to, I don't know, I think the term is maybe like freemium or like some of these different like news article type things where they kind of bait you in with a little bit of content, but then they lock it behind a paywall. And a lot of companies are going towards this uh, this business model now to kind of like the, the example that I run into a lot is as, you know, finance consultants, we read a lot of the FT, right? And you get, you know, two articles per month that you can read for free or Business Insider where they'll allow you to read the first paragraph of one uh, news article, but then they turn it into an ad for buying their subscription service. I think advertising like that, comparably to what we're talking about, is you know happy to deal with the ads for these free app, these free uh, platforms. But as they start to infringe upon like all, like a percentage of all the content you consume, just becomes locked behind some kind of, of payment in the form of an ad. I think it becomes a little bit irritating or a little bit in your face about it. Do you think you also see it that way because we've seen the transition from having lots of free content? to it being paid? Because maybe, yeah, the younger generation, they'll be used to yeah, it. Yeah, precisely. I just remember just from reading news articles throughout college and high school and then having this all of a sudden be half of every news article is, is cut off or I you know, have to click on an ad or something. But you guys are sort of growing up in, the, in that environment and maybe not seeing it as much or maybe the, the younger edge of, of Gen Z. I think that's probably the younger edge of Gen Z because I remember that change and I think that's why I find it irritating. But kind of linking back to Martin's point about how accessible YouTube is and how it's free for everyone. The ads are annoying, but I prefer it when it's as blocked content and you unlock it than if you have to pay because, I mean, from like basically every standpoint, I think that it's much preferable, more preferable if you can exchange like what is essentially your data, right? And some advertising time than if you have to pay money just in terms of equal access and data being available? I think generally we've been reasonably positive about advertising and the trade-off between free content and advertising. But a media in which it is possibly more dangerous is that of free mobile games. There's been a lot of news stories recently about how addictive they are, especially for children at the younger end of Gen Z, and how by paying money you can prevent adverts and make the content more accessible and reduce wait times. And that's something where there's an addictiveness that I don't think comes with traditional social media. How do you guys feel you fit into the idea that we're very different in terms of how we view the online retail experience and that Generation Z is portrayed as not even seeing a difference anymore between online and physical and that if you go to the brick and mortar store, you want to be able to have an almost immediate connection to the online realm and that they shouldn't be two separate entities. On that. I think I see the two as like they're very different experiences. I don't think I'd see them as aligned that much in terms of they are just very different things. But I definitely do see there as, you know, it's a very fluid divide and I would definitely switch between the two. Um, you know, I might start online and then go in store to try things on or like have them delivered and then return them to an... Uh, yeah, so that that's the emphasis on the blurring of the lines yeah. is that the experience crosses these two different realms and that if companies aren't able to provide a good experience on in both aspects, they're likely to lose you. I don't know if, if um, Mike and Chen, you guys would be too young to have kind of seen the change, but what I don't know is whether this is a generational thing or just that there are now more brands catered to our kind of age range that 
facilitate more of that online, offline. I mean, ASOS isn't that great of an experience because it is an example because it is all online. But there's a much bigger sector now than there was before. So how much do you guys think it's a generational shift and how much is it just the way that retail is going? For me specifically, um, I actually think I'm a little bit more on the the Gen Z side where it's it's blurred, even though there are certain things that I, like I said, that are just, I subjectively buy online or buy in the store. Um, because in my opinion, I think it's just, nowadays it's just so easy to, to look up, like look up something on your phone while you're in the store or like, it's not like a, a big jump to engage with a, with a brand in both environments. If you guys see or understand what I'm saying, yeah. it's like, it's just much more accessible nowadays you don't have to you know go home and sit down at the computer everything's on your phone and you can kind of just um yeah pick and choose for me it's a bit different from other people i really shop online so most of my expenses happen offline in the retail shops and the main reason is being that i don't want to spend too much online and not too much time not too much money so I think with online shopping, it's more likely that you will end up shop, shopping more than you will do offline. That's my idea. So I, I'm kind of against shopping online. But at the same time, I know in China, most people um, do their shoppings online only. With the mobile payment, it's even uh, a lot easier to do online shopping. And it's yeah. um, quite seamless between online and offline shops. So if you made a purchase online, you can uh, return it in the offline shop, you can change it in the offline shop. So it's really convenient for, for them. Yeah, China's definitely leading the way in terms of uh, easier payments and online shopping. So then also in connection to the retail experience, um, this is also connected to millennials, but it's exacerbated even more with Generation Z. There's been a very strong preference for buying experiences over actual objects. And this ties into retail as well, but also across many different sectors. So in terms of travel, it's completely changing how the travel industry is set up in that people aren't really as keen to do the prepackaged tours. You wanna go do something that's more unique, you want to experience something that's more unique. So what are you guys' thoughts on the relationship between preferring buying experiences over items? I would definitely say I prefer spending my money on buying experiences than items. Personally, because I think they have a longer lasting impact than the short-term rush of um, shoppers' relief of buying something, uh, buying a product. You can see there could be a link between that and social media and that people want to appear more popular online and more unique online. So they go and have more, they try and have more unique experiences, so they can capture that and then show that off to their friends. Yeah, so that is also probably a huge defining aspect for both generations and that the ability of social media to broadcast what you're doing makes the items that you purchase less exciting and the unique experiences more so. I think I'd agree with Martin in terms of spending money more on experiences, um, but I don't know how clear the line is. Um, like I think I've I probably still spend a reasonable amount on clothes, but I think in there there's like there's the experience of, of wearing something. But the, yeah, yeah, and the experience of shopping. You know, it's it's all. I don't think there's that much of a divide between the items and the experience. And I think when I buy an item, I'm not thinking about the item itself. I'm thinking about my experience of having it. So if I'm buying it, it'll be is this you know is this going to make me happy on a really regular basis for the next like year or what, however long. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting you mentioned that. So the statistic I think I was trying to draw this to is that 
um, as a generation, millennials included as well, were much more likely to spend money on food, which is where the big avocado toast debate comes from. But that's been completely disproven as being an insane way to measure how long it would take to buy a house. But just generally, we're more likely to spend money on food than previous generations. And this is also tied into how younger generations generally view how well the economy is going. So if they think, I'll never be able to buy a house, so it's my, might as well just enjoy the day today a bit more. Uh, and that's probably also explains why we're more likely to uh, purchase experiences over the large items that we can't afford. On that, like, how likely you think it is that you'll be able to afford a house? Um, I know this like varies quite a lot geographically, but kind of growing up, how have you guys started to view the future and how do you see what were you told when you were growing up and kind of how do we think that varies generationally? If you're, you're living in a, a lease property, that's not a real home. There's, that's a Chinese culture thing. And another thing is that parents always want to take care of their children. So they will take care of uh, us. My parents were prepared for me. So I never worry about, I never need to worry about this. But the thing is these days, a lot of parents can't even afford a second apartment due to a lot of reasons, regulations or uh, lack of money. So that would be a new problem for the younger generation, I guess, when their parents can't even afford a second apartment. I think it's also interesting because we're all in Hong Kong away from home, so we're already quite international. So I know, for example, that a UK think tank recently suggested giving everyone under the age of 30 £10,000 so that they would be able to get a bit of a leg up on being able to purchase a house. £10,000 is not enough, but they're still trying to tackle the widespread problem. So in the U.S., or at least in my family, in my experience, it was a little bit more of a, as far as sort of financial behavior and when it specifically comes like preparing for the future, was sort of educate yourself and figure out where you want to be in, you know, X amount of years and then kind of work towards a goal. And it's specifically like as far as a house is like if, if you want to, you know, own a house by the time you're you're 40 or 50, I don't know, whatever they say that the, the best practices are, but you need a job and then, you know, you know, to make money to get a decent sized house, you need to have maybe a college degree and then just, you know, being smart with your money and putting money away in the bank and just kind of being an overall a, a healthy financial citizen and never kind of taking things for granted. That's how kind of my family taught me and a lot of my uh, peers in the US did. Yeah, I'd agree with my, the kind of house ownership didn't really become, it's not really a conversation I remember ever having no, I mean, growing yeah. up. I remember there being a very pre prevalent sense that the future was very uncertain and it was very much, you know, you need to educate yourself, you need to, you know, just make sure you're, you know, you're secure and that you, you've kind of done everything you can to kind of protect yourself against whatever might happen in the future because we don't know. Yeah, I think that's also, I don't know if it was the same for you guys, but at school I was told very, very often that we're going to be doing jobs that don't exist yet and we're going to be changing them so often that you need to be really flexible in the skills that you acquire, the knowledge that you acquire and how you're able to shift between careers. And I think, yeah, what you were saying, that's more of what I heard than anything about home ownership, especially moving around, owning a home is not really very practical. I don't know, Martin, I'd be interested to see if you agree. I think the thing in the UK that's been going on kind of the last few years in terms of when we were looking at, you know, choosing our A-levels, going into the university and things, the bigger debate in the UK was we've got too, the language is too many, um, too many people doing degrees. It's much more about how well you do and there won't be enough jobs for the level you're going for. So it was more of a com competition in terms of that sense, rather than it being, it'll be new jobs, and we don't know what they are yet. It was, 
much more of a like competitive scarcity story, which is much more scary. Uh, yeah, I'd agree with that. I think there was a sense that university degrees were possibly becoming devalued by how many people were going to university. And I was told at a young age, you know, education is very important and you should work hard at school so you can go to a good university. And that distinction being made between good universities and good degrees and degrees that won't add much value. And I think that's a conversation that not necessarily maybe everyone had, but my parents put value on certain subjects and having that long-term aspiration of going to university so you can have a more stable financial future. Did that link for you to kind of 2008, a big kind of financial crisis? In my mind, it didn't link to 2008 because at the time I wasn't, I was aware that the economy was, things weren't going well, but it didn't have too much of an impact on my kind of personal life at the time. So I th possibly it might have influenced my parents more, who are obviously adults with investments and whatnot, and more aware of um, the how badly the economy was doing and the uncertainty. I think for me it was more the issues that were brought to the forefront when tuition fees were raised and the debate and the discussion about university and its place in society was raised once again and then it kind of seemed that okay this is very like going to a good university going to a good university is important because people and it's something that should be protected and something that's valued and that was what kind of inspired me more to try and work hard and go to a good university. I thought it would be interesting to talk about what we were told in terms of the future for gender diversity and diversity more generally. Uh, because there's also a lot of geographical variation in this case. And um, it's been said that Generation Z, especially in the US, has been the most diverse they've ever had. I think the data around the world haven't come across as much, but specifically in the US, in the US they are individually the most diverse. And then also believe that diversity is just a given as well. So I know, Becky, you've been doing a lot of research on diversity and inclusion. Yeah. So I think this is like the really exciting angle of the generational debate, which, um, given my kind of research background, would make sense. But um, I think especially the David Stillman episode of this series, which if you haven't listened to, you should definitely go and listen to, um, was really exciting in what he was saying about the way millennials versus Gen Z see kind of work-life balance. Whereas for millennials, they arrived in the workplace and work-life balance was a demanded thing and you know you need to have paternity leave as well as maternity leave in kind of this quite western centric I, I know we'll, we'll, we'll rectify that later hopefully um but it was much more demanding that work the workplace recognize commitments outside of work whereas for gen z it's much more of a the view is that work and home should be integrated and it's kind of overall you know if I leave work at four I'll work later in the evening and that's fine and I think that's a really exciting shift because that's really what we need and the trust that that relationship is built in is kind of what we need to make any more progress with diversity in, in my opinion. Yeah so you think the work-life blend will do a lot more to help further the cause for diversity and inclusion? Yeah that and the the um, enabling nature of technology now I'm very hopeful but hopefully that's not a pipe dream. <laughs> what does everyone else think? I think that just having a melded work-life balance to where your work kind of is integrated with your home and that work kind of becomes this sort of overarching thing in your life is how we've got how we've come to sort of this this modern era that we're in now with all these amazing technologies and crazy innovations going on and huge companies being built by uh, you know 18 year olds is that that attitude is much more prevalent now is just kind of work really hard and it 
the day doesn't end at six. So the fact is that just for a lot of people, the long hours don't work. You know, they have caring responsibilities, especially as our society gets a lot older, that's going to become much more prevalent. And, you know, as hopefully as, as gender equality continues to progress, you'll have much less of the population who are willing to stay and work from 6am till 10pm because as far as they're concerned, their wife will look after all their children in the home and they'll have dinner ready or whatever. I think it's much more of a recognition that you will work, a, you know, your nine-hour day, but your nine hours won't be in an office from nine till nine to five, nine to six. That's that's the model that I see being disrupted, and I think that's the model that Gen Z are going to challenge. And I think that the exciting thing about this integration is that, like millennials, there is this recognition that you have to balance the two. It's just a different way of approaching it. It's taking that balance for granted, but it's saying, okay, if we can balance that, why can't I balance it on my own terms, not on your terms? It's not so much that it's just the generations who are wanting this behavior, but it's more like they put emphasis on it and then there's a greater, wider realization like, oh, that's a really good way of doing it and we're all getting on board. So similar with the millennials who've been called the purpose generation in that it's not just millennials that want purpose in the workplace. It's just that they prioritized it more, so they centered it a bit more in the discussion and then everyone was like, yes, I also want purpose yeah, in the workplace. Yeah, it's a little bit of a blend. It's like I think that millennial generation is almost in between of moving from the... Uh, the boomers sort of mindset and then my at my edge of that generation is almost more of Gen Z you know agreeing with with the point that that, that uh, people in the Gen Z make about work-life balance and that it's almost like a complete 180 yeah I, I the difference I see here is not just about the attitude toward work-life balance but more about younger generations want to be more entrepreneurial they, they want to um, have the ownership of something, of some business, or take control over their own life. So I think that leads to the difference in the attitude toward work-life balance. Yeah, that's completely true. I think the statistics also reflect that very well, that um, it's the most entrepreneurial generation yet. How do you guys think that links to what we've been talking about with in terms of social media and social validation and that? I think it depends on the person again, but I think that social validation is definitely a driving factor in that attitude, right, is that going back to we're talking about like, you know, have a good life and financially secure and, and have purpose in your work. I just think people put more, I don't know if it's, you know, uh, warranted, but give more respect to people that work super long hours and, you know, always are chasing success. And that's a very prominent thing on social media is that, uh, you know, the entrepreneurial lifestyle of working 60 hour weeks is very, you know, to retire when you're 40. That, that kind of narrative is, is very appealing to some with some of the, the huge entrepreneurs and, and companies that we've seen built over the past couple years. So that's all we have time for on today's episode of Typhoon Talks. So the big takeaways from today's discussion was that even though we're from different generations according to birth years, there's actually quite a lot that makes us very similar. And then looking towards the younger end of Generation Z, then we can see that there will be a lot more differences. So then in terms of technology and social media, that is where we saw a lot of similarities and the differences were more in how we interact with them and our awareness of the, the trade-off for our data. And then it's similar in terms of advertising that we prefer transparency, but we are in general okay with the trade-off of exchanging free services for our data. And then finally, looking forward and what we were told about the future, 
the work-life balance or the work-life blend is where we're going to hopefully see Generation Z taking a stand and shaking up the workplace a bit more. So thank you, Becky, Martin, Michael and Chen for joining us today. Thank you. Follow us on Twitter at Typhoon Buzz and on iTunes and SoundCloud at Typhoon Talks for more podcast episodes and also visit our website at typhoonconsulting.com for more industry points of view. We hope you'll join us again next time.